All right, a lot now. Um, if you joined us uh, for the first time or you skipped a Sunday last week, um, let me give you a bit of a recap of what we went through. We, we entered into the season uh, of Advent. Um, did I say that as a New Zealand accent? Yeah, sorry. I, I do have a bit of New Zealand blood in me, um, so it does come out randomly from here and there, so please show me grace. But anyways, uh, yeah, we went into a season of Advent. Um, it's called, uh, the sermon series is titled Glimpses of God. Um, so uh, Pastor Paul uh, kicked it off with a banger. Um, with the first sermon series, uh, sermon of the sermon series, and we're going to continue all the way up to uh, Christmas Eve service. So today is um, the second of those of that sermon series, and we're looking at some promises that God made to His people in the book of Isaiah, 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 Isaiah. I'm going to just say Isaiah, Isaiah. Um, so let's open up to the book of Isaiah. Um, we're looking at uh, chapter 11. We'll start off in verse 1, and then we'll end uh, at verse 11, verse 10. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to verse 10. Uh, Please follow along as I read out God's word, Um, and this is, of course, uh, the word of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with a lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead the graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of God. Well, hello again. Uh, it's good to see everyone, um, especially all the new people who are here uh, today. Uh, so I'm just going to hook, hook up so I can... I think we've got some technical difficulties. One sec, guys. Now... We've all witnessed the power of leadership right, throughout our lives. Uh, leadership has the potential to bring great benefits uh, to people, uh, to the teams, or to whoever they're leading, or it has the potential to bring great harm. Right? Leadership has the potential to bring, bring great benefit or to bring great harm. Let me ask you, do you know the, what the most profitable com- company in the world is right now? Have a guess. The answer, if you said Apple, it's not Apple right now. <laughs> it used to be. 
I thought it was Apple. Apparently, Saudi Aramco, right? Or oil and gas, because right, uh, the prices have skyrocketed. But let's assume it's Apple, okay? <laughs> Apple's number two. Um, Apple, if you know, I, I, I like Apple. I like Apple stuff. Uh, Apple makes like over $100 billion of profit a year. That's a lot of money. Um, but that wasn't always the case. You may or may not know, back in about 1996, Apple was only a few weeks away from bankruptcy due to failed leadership. Now, Apple was founded by three people, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Steve Wozniak, and another guy, uh, Ron Wayne, but he, he left, and he made very little money. Uh, if he stayed, he would have made lots of money. But those three founders, uh, Steve Jobs, one of them, in 1976, but Steve Jobs was fired nine years later. Right, 1985. And since then, you can kind of track that the company started to go downhill. And by 1996, they were only a few weeks away from bankruptcy. So in an act of desperation, they fired their current CEO, or fired, right, they made him resign, and they brought back Steve Jobs right, as the interim CEO. This is 1997, a few weeks away from bankruptcy, 12 years after firing him. And under his leadership, they streamlined their products. They released a bunch of hits like the iPod, iTunes, iPhone, iPad, right? They were brought back to profitability and relevancy. And now, right, they are one of the most profitable companies in the world. And the story of Apple really shows us the power of leadership, both to you know, bring a company down and to bring it to near bankruptcy or to you know, revive a company and bring it back to profitability. And we see this all the time in our lives, the, the power of leaders and their ability to bring good or bad. Right? Elon Musk, Bob Iger in Disney, right? he was brought back as well. But we see it also in the churches, the power of leadership and the ability to bring good or bad, which is why when we elected our first round of elders last week, we made a big deal about it because leadership is important. We see the power of leadership in your workplace, your team leader, your boss, and how they can make your life good or bad. They can make your, your, your team or the company work well or not. We see the power of leadership in the home as parents steer the fortunes of the family. And we see the power of leadership in world leaders, prime ministers and presidents, able to steer the fortunes of a country. When we come to the book of Isaiah, what we're seeing is the power of leadership at work. And how leadership, unfortunately, is leading the people into a bad place. I said last week that the people of God, right, this is the title of today's sermon. But the people of God are in a very bad place. A spiritually dark place. They're in deep sin and deep idolatry. And a great part of that is due to the leader. Or the leaders that they've had really since King David and Solomon. Again, it's been downhill since then. The current king, I said, was as bad as you can get. He has shut the doors to the temple of God. He's established idolatrous worship to other gods all throughout Jerusalem. And he's even sacrificed his own children. Right? It says Ahaz was 20 years old. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And verse 3, he burned his sons as an offering. Right? This is the kind of king that was reigning. And therefore, if that's the kind of leader you have, well, you expect low expectation for what the kings will be like. And it says here that, first, he walked in the ways of the kings. This is the way the kings were. 
Right? We're surprised when we read about a king in the Old Testament who didn't sacrifice his child or didn't worship other gods, right? even though he's a king of the people of God. And maybe that's how you feel when you look around at life today. We have low expectations for our leaders. We expect them to fail us. Again, this all matters because leadership has a potential to bring great benefit or great harm. And in the case of the people of God, their leader was leading them to great harm. We're in chapter 11 today. That's what Daniel read. But the verses right before the verses Daniel read, in the end of chapter 10, this is the picture of their destination. This is where they are headed toward. Verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. I remember many years ago before we were married, Uni and I, we went to Tasmania and we were headed toward the east. I think it was like somewhere with an F, somewhere in the east. And the way to get there was just, there was just one long road to get there. Uh, but we weren't sure we'd make it to the cabin we were trying to get to because there were immense bushfires at the time. Uh, luckily, the roads weren't closed. We were able to go through. But as we were driving, you look to your left and you look to your right, and it was just black. And it's just flat ground with stumps of trees burned down. Image of destruction, of lifelessness, of what once was. Even though we didn't know what, what it was, we know that it wasn't what we're seeing, which was complete desolation. And the picture that God is giving of where the people are headed toward is similar. What was once a thriving, let's say a forest, teeming with life, reaching up to the skies, birds chirping in the air, right? life scurrying around in the grass is now going to be cut down, he says. And it's just going to be a wasteland of nothing, left with stumps, no life, right? no sound. That is where you were headed toward. And we understand this image of living in Australia as bushfires devastate the country. It's destruction. And that is where they are headed. In great part, there. This once prosperous and thriving kingdom, once the, 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 the place where people would go to seek wisdom, to find what prosperity looks like, is headed toward destruction. That's the power of leadership. The kings of Israel are leading their people there. Now, as we consider that image of utter destruction that they're headed toward, we need to know that this was not only Israel's prophetic destiny. This is also ours. Our destiny, if not by the grace of God, is that we will end up in a place of destruction. Any attempt by anyone to follow anybody that is not God. Right? You follow anyone, any leader, any king, Right? Any boss, anyone that you will say, I'm going to follow you, they will lead you to that same destination. It will lead you to destruction. This is the recurring theme in the scriptures. We were made to follow God. Only God or one sent from God. Anybody else that we follow and we bank our lives on, it will lead us to destruction. Adam and Eve were made to submit to God, but the moment they chose to lead themselves, to be their own leaders, to make their own choices, is when everything fell apart. And in the book of 1 Samuel 8, the people come to God, right? And until this point, they have had no king. But they ask God, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. 
I know we have you, God, but really we want someone else who can lead us into war. God, in 1 Samuel 8, he rebukes them. He gives them a list of all the things that will go wrong now that they've established a king that is not God, someone to follow that is not God. And I won't go through it all, but at the end of it, he says, And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You want a king, I'll give you a king, but that king will lead you not to a great place, but to a bad place. And what we find in the book of Isaiah is that that list of kings have led them now into destruction. It doesn't matter how charismatic or successful our earthly leaders and kings are, if they are not God, if we're not submitting ultimately to God, where we're headed is destruction. Now, the people that we follow, your boss or you know, the, the top 10 best-selling self-help book, we, we can glean stuff from them. We can learn stuff. It might help you in the present. But if they are your ultimate leader, then your ultimate destination is destruction. God must be the ultimate leader of your life. He must be the one that we submit to if we are to ever hope to have a different outcome than Israel had. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. This is the default trajectory of humanity going down a wide road and at the end of it, he says it's destruction. And it doesn't matter who you're following. If they're going that way, that is where we will end. Judgment, wrath, and hell. Peter puts it this way. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is of the ungodly. This is the, again, this is the end. This is what's going to happen. Judgment and destruction. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I know this is not like a cheery thing for us to hear, but this is the, the, the sad reality that we need to know. All of humanity is headed that way along with the people of Israel. And as we stand before that image of complete and utter destruction, that's what was once for us, right? Now burned down to the ground, just black, dead and silence. And then you see among its life. Right? That's what chapter 11 says. Verse 1, root from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This little shoot, this sprout that pokes up out of what is the dead stump, will grow, he says, to be a branch, and the branch will lead to much fruit. Again, this is hope, where there was once no hope. This is life, where there once was only... It's like when scientists, they, they think a, an, a species of an animal is extinct, and they're like, oh, there's no way that we can bring this animal back. But then they go to the middle of nowhere, and they, they find like a few of them, and there's a surge of hope, because now the possibilities are endless. Right? There was once no hope, but now there is. It was once only destruction but now there's the possibility of life and this is what is being symbolized here with this shoot now this shoot is this jesus right again he was born two thousand years ago not really on christmas day but that's when we remember when he was born but he's described in three ways here 
is described as the promised king. What's it say? It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now in verse 10, he's called the root of Jesse. And elsewhere in the Bible, he's called the root of David. But the image of, why is it the stump of Jesse? It's to say that he's coming from that lineage from Jesse, who's the father of David. So he's one of that lineage. David, Solomon, he's he's from that lineage. He'll come forth from there. And this is important because God had promised David in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. He says to David, King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. God had promised David, one day there will come from you, your lineage, right, your child or your child's child, somewhere down that line, a king. Right? I'll establish his kingdom. And so this is why it's important. Jesus is the promised king, the one that God had promised to David. Matthew makes this clear that Jesus is this king. Come to gospel. Right? The first words of the gospel of Matthew begin, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in verse 6, he traces it all the way to Jesse the father of David, the king. And so this king will come. He's from the stump of Jesse. He's one of those children. He's a promised king. And then Matthew says that king is Jesus himself. He's not only the promised king that people of Israel are waiting for. And I said last week, they waited about 750 years for this king to come. They had anticipated him to arrive and he was born roughly on Christmas. We read, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This isn't just another king in a long line of kings. This is the last king. This is the permanent king, the forever king, that when he takes his seat on the throne, he will rule and reign forever. That is what is being promised. Now when Jesus came to earth, was born, he lived, he died on the cross and rose from the dead. He ushered in his kingdom, right? He inaugurated it, we say. And when he returns, he will fulfill it, right? It will be consummated. And he will continue his reign as our king forever. The king of the world. He is that permanent king. Now having one person to rule forever, that could be bad news. There's a reason why there's terms for presidents and prime ministers and even elders. It'd be bad news if he were not also the perfect king. It's great news if the one who is ruling forever is the best best person to do it. In the book of Isaiah, he prophesies that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, upon this promised king, the root of Jesse. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now we see this fulfilled again in Jesus. When Jesus is born and he begins his ministry in the book of Matthew, he describes what happens. He's baptized. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The book of Isaiah said the Spirit will rest upon him, and that's what we're seeing now in the book of Matthew. The Spirit, in the form of a dove, rests on Christ. 
Jesus is unlike any other king. For every other king operates by their human ability, the human wisdom, the human knowledge. But Jesus is not just man, he is God, anointed with the Spirit, unlike any other king. And so he has the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Human leaders may try their best, but the reality is we often operate out of selfishness to advance our own agenda. We're not always fair, even if we try to be. And often the rich and the powerful get their way at the cost of the poor and the weak. But as, this, as we continue to read, verse 3 to 5, and we won't read it through, but he explains that as Jesus leads by the Spirit, he won't be like that. In his supernatural knowledge, he'll be, he'll be fair and he'll know exactly what's happening. He's fair to the poor and to the meek of the earth that are often neglected and stepped upon. And he'll be just to the wicked. He will be the perfect king that will rule fairly and in all justice. And all of this matters, again, because leadership has the potential to bring great benefit or great harm. And all the other leaders that we follow will lead us to destruction. But Jesus is no ordinary king. And as no ordinary king, he will lead us to a different kind of place. If the world is headed toward destruction, what Christ promises for those who will truly believe in him and follow him is the opposite of destruction. Destruction is things falling apart, but it says that he will renew all things. He will make all things better and really back to the way that God had intended it to be when he created the universe. In verse 6 to 9, God through Isaiah, he paints a picture of what this future kingdom is going to look like. What is waiting for you if you are following Christ, if he truly is the one that you submit to. And I'm just going to summarize in these two ways. Sorry, can I get the next slide, please? The first is that he will bring about a physical renewal. In verse 6, he says, this is what Isaiah says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. I don't know if you've ever seen those YouTube clips where like, you've got like a predator and a prey, and for some reason the predator doesn't attack the prey. It's like the, the, the tiger takes care of the dog and like, you know, protects it, and we're like, oh, that's so sweet. You know, like, we know that that doesn't happen in life. We just, if you keep them in the cage together, eventually you know, they won't take care of the dog. Right? It'll eat the dog. There's a sense in which like, deep down in, in animals, no matter how much you try to tame them, no matter how much you try to like, you know, teach them, innately they have this violent thing inside of them. Right? There's a primal violence within them. Right? If you saw Tiger King through you know, lockdown, you know, like, he tries to tame the tigers, eventually they, they attacked back. And yet the picture that is given of this future kingdom, this new heavens and new earth, is one where we are transformed radically, even in that innate kind of part of us where the wolf will be with the lamb the leopard will lie down with the goat right? these animals are now at peace and if you know what it was meant to be in the garden of eden it was this 
In the Garden of Eden, God gave to all animals the trees, right, the plants to eat of, not that they would eat each other. And so Jesus will bring in a kingdom where he will restore it and renew it. And it will be a kingdom of peace. Not only where the animals are good, but then we are. The little child shall lead them, he says. Even a child can be in the midst of them. But it's not just a promise of physical renewal. It's the promise of a spiritual renewal. In verse 8, Isaiah says this, and it seems to be the same thing, but really it's something else. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Isaiah gives a picture twice of a child with a snake. On the first time playing near a cobra, and the second, the child putting his hand in, in the home of an adder. A child and a snake. Does that remind you of something else back in creation? Back in creation when you know, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they shouldn't have and God pours out his curses and judgment on them, he tells the snake, who is Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what God is saying is there is now going to be a, a constant struggle amongst all of humans between us and evil, us and the enemy, the devil. There's a battle against sin. And this is eventually going to lead to the seed who is Christ. And Christ will bruise the head of the snake. He will deal a fatal blow to the enemy. Now his heel will be hurt. He will die. It won't be fatal. He'll rise from the dead but he will defeat Satan. And this Christ, who is our king, will now lead us to a place where there is no more war. There is no fight against sin, where it's described that the child will now play with the snake and be in the midst of it. Because in that promised kingdom, that battle will be waged no more. We'll no no longer be fighting sin. We'll no longer be tempted. We'll no longer have regrets and make mistakes. Right, sin will no, have no presence there. On one hand, you've got this wide road that leads to destruction and everything's going to fall apart. Where sin will increase, where there'll be greater violence and hatred and it will lead to your doom. And on the other way, isn't easy. It's, it's a difficult but narrow path which we will find if we follow Christ. And the question is, which path will you follow? Following anybody that is not God or from God would lead you to the same destination that Israel were headed toward. Only submitting to Christ, only following him will lead us to a path that leads to life. Jesus can give you this life. He can lead you to this promised kingdom where all things will be renewed. He can do it because when he came to this earth, he took your sins upon himself. When he died on the cross, he took your sins and the anger and the judgment of the Father was poured out on him. So that if you believe in Christ, you will not be judged from the Father. You will not need to receive his condemnation. Your sins are no longer counted against you. You are free. And you are now a child of God. And that as you follow him, he will lead you truly to life. 
to a renewed kingdom where there is no destruction and there is only joy, love, and all things are renewed. This is the king that came on Christmas. This is the king that we wait for to return when he will make all things new. Is this your king? Is this the one that you follow today? Not by the mere confession of your lips, not just because you attended church, but in genuine surrender, in true commitment, faith in what he's done for you in his life, death, resurrection. I believe you've forgiven me of my sins and now I'll follow you for the rest of my life. Do you commit to this king? Are you? Jesus is the only one who can lead you to a destination that is not destruction. The only one. You know, if I'm honest, as I prepared this sermon, I, I had to pause and uh, repent because I kept asking my you, how can I make you care about what I'm talking about? How can I put more of you in the sermon? Because it has a lot of Jesus in it. And I had to check myself and repent because what a ridiculous thought that a sermon could have too much Jesus. And I don't know if you're sitting here. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Well, there's a lot of stuff about Jesus and King and prophecy. Um, but I don't know what it has to do with me. And I think oftentimes when we come around to Christmas, that's what we're trying to figure out. What does Christmas have to do with me? What does it say about me? And that's not a bad thing because when Jesus came, everything changed for you. But I think the more important question for us to ask is not what Christmas has to say about you, but what does it have to say about Jesus? That if we could understand Jesus a little bit more on our lead up to Christmas, I think that is more than sufficient for us. Christmas is about Christ. He is the central character. He is the promised king, the Davidic king, the root of Jesse, the root of David. He is the savior of the world, the child who was born, the son who was given. He is the one that all of creation looks to and worships. It's about him. And we benefit, but it's about him. And my hope is that in, amongst everything I said, that you would have enlarged your understanding and vision of who this king is. And in doing so, that you would then give him worship. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, he says, What comes into our minds when we think about God, and you put Jesus there because he's God, God the Son, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Right? What do you think about God is the most important thing about you. He says the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous or momentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That is the greatest question and the most important thing for you. Who is God? And what do you think about God? I'm going to end with one more passage from the Bible. But in the book of Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle John, he's, he's having a vision. He's writing down what he saw. He's before the throne of God. And he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll 
written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? The angel's asking, Who's worthy to open these these seals? And the seals represent the, the unfolding purposes of God. It will go forth in judgment against evil and sin, but then, because of that, be able to lead to salvation for the people of God. Right? Evil must be eradicated in order for us to live in the new heavens and new earth where there is no evil, where everything is renewed. And so who's worthy to unfold that judgment and to pour it out? Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John weeps, he says, weeps loudly. He breaks down. There's no one in all of history, in all of heaven, and all of earth, across all of time, who is just enough, fair enough, righteous enough, holy enough, has enough power or authority to advance God's purposes. It's as if John looks through every single person who's ever been born and ever lived, every man or woman, every leader or prime minister or president or entrepreneur or leader, and every single one of them are not worthy to unfold the purpose of of God and to lead his people into a place that is not destruction. And he breaks down and weeps because he knows if no one is worthy, then no one is saved. And we're all headed toward destruction. And evil and sin will continue on this earth. There must be one who is different from everyone else. One who is better. And then in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, here it is, the promised king, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is our king. He is the servant king who died on the cross, the lamb slain for our sins. And this is how they respond. And this is how we respond if we would catch a greater glimpse of Christ. Verse 9, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed sermon that makes us look more to Jesus. I think that's enough. That if we would see that Christ is the promised king, the permanent forever king, he is the perfect king, the one that the world had waited for and we're waiting for him to return. And when he returns, he will make all things right. There is no one like him. He alone is worthy. And if we will follow him, he will lead us to a kingdom that will be renewed. Would you look to him, follow him, and give him worship this Christmas season? Let's close our eyes and let us pray. I want you to look in your heart toward God and ask yourself this question. If you are truly following Christ as Lord and Savior, is He your King to whom your life submits to and whom you follow? He has given us far more than we deserved. He forgives us of our sins. He sets us free 
from that battle against sin. We're called children of God. And we have our eternity secure. But it's so easy to confess those things with our lips. Do we truly follow Him in our day to day? We may look to this world's leaders and try to learn how to be smarter, funnier, more successful, to get more money. Those things might benefit us for the moment. But all worldly leaders lead us to destruction in the end. Only Christ, our King, can lead us to a kingdom that is renewed. Would you follow Him? Would you surrender your idolatry and your sin and follow Christ? Commit again to follow Him and maybe for the first time to believe in Him, turn from your sin and to follow Him as your only Lord and Savior. And as you follow Him, He will lead you to life and joy and to a kingdom that will last forever. And as you follow Him, would you give Him thanks and praise and give Him worship as He deserves. Can we make that our prayer? And then we'll close with a song. Let us pray.